Now, can we read together in the book of Jonah? We're going to read from Moffat's translation this evening. Jonah chapter 1. <clears throat> Jonah and chapter 1. This message from the Eternal came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and thunder in their ears that their wickedness is known to me. But Jonah went away to fly to Tartarus from the presence of the Eternal. He came down to Jaffa, and when he found a ship there sailing for Tartarus, he paid his fare and went on board to reach Tartarus with the crew, avoiding the presence of the Lord. But the Lord flung a furious wind upon the sea. There was a heavy storm at sea, and the ship thought she would be broken. The sailors were scared, each cried to his own God, and they flung the tackle of the ship overboard in order to lighten her. Now Jonah had gone below and was lying fast asleep. The captain came upon him and said to him, What are you doing asleep? Get up and call upon your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us and save us. And then they said one to another, Come on, let's cast lots to find out who has brought this trouble upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They asked him, Tell us now, what are you doing here? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what is your nation? So he told them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Eternal, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men said to him in terror, Whatever have you done? For they discovered that he was flying from the Eternal. Jonah had told them that. They said, what are we to do with you to make the sea calm? For the seas were running higher and higher. Take me and throw me into the sea, Jonah said. That will bring a calm. I see that it is I who have brought this storm upon you. But the men dug in their oars to row the ship to land. Only they could not, for the seas ran higher and higher against them. So they cried to the Eternal, O Eternal, we beseech thee, let us not perish for taking this man's life. Punish us not for a murder. Thou hast thyself brought this about, O Eternal. Then, lifting Jonah, they flung him into the sea. The sea ceased from its fury, and the men, in great awe of the Eternal, sacrificed to him and made vows to him. Now the Eternal ordered a great fish to swallow Jonah, and for three days and three nights Jonah lay in the belly of the fish. From the belly of the fish Jonah prayed thus to the Eternal, his God. I'm going to just read that prayer in the Standard Version. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice. For thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. 
All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from thy presence. How shall I again look upon thy holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Just have one word of prayer. Lord, we do especially commit this evening into thy hands, and we do open our hearts by faith to take hold of thee, Lord, that thou wilt be to us all that we need. If we are in any way to get to the heart of this book, Lord, complete this particular study in this wonderful part of thy word, we need the Holy Spirit, and we unconditionally commit ourselves to him, to lead us into all the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus. Our Father, we thank Thee that Thou canst transcend every physical, mental, and spiritual difficulty and obstacle. And we praise Thee that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as the provision and the resource for every emergency. Upon Him we call and in Him we trust as we come to this hour this evening. Now, Lord, take hold of it for thyself and write indelibly by the Holy Spirit upon our hearts and lives exactly what thou art wanting to say through this portion of thy word. We ask it in thy name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to go over anything that we said last week at all. I'm sorry for those who weren't here uh, in one way because there's so much of the technical foundation which in some ways is um, a little necessary uh, to understand some of the things, some of the assertions, some of the uh, statements that I shall make. But I'm going to begin straight away this evening with the key to this book of Jonah. We've dealt with something of the introduction, we've dealt with the authorship and the date, we've dealt with the background of the prophet. Now, the key to this book of Jonah. What is the key to this book? It's very necessary in coming to an understanding of this book to recognize that the essential theme is, is to be discovered within, hidden within the relationship of Jonah and the Lord and the Lord and Jonah. Uh, at the, at the uh, the first glance at the little book of Jonah, I think most people think it's all about a very great city that repented. It's all about a, 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 a disobedience of a certain prophet who was swallowed by a fish and then was taken to a very great metropolis and there was used to um, produce a very great turning to God. 
But in actual fact, although those are the um, those are the facts of the, of the story as recorded, they are incidental as far as the Bible goes. For it becomes increasingly clear as you study this little four-chaptered book that it, it is within the relationship of Jonah and the Lord that we find the key. You have only uh, to understand uh, that in fact all these other things are almost background material to come or to take the first step toward an understanding of this book. You see, we must understand that Jonah represents much more than a mere individual. He expresses the people of God within himself. It's just as if a searchlight is focused upon this one man, Jonah, as if he has been selected out of thousands upon thousands, not only of the ordinary people of God, but of prophets of the Lord. It's as if Jonah has been selected because he, beyond many others, uh, was the best illustration of a point that the Holy Spirit wanted to make. And the searchlight of God, as it were, is focused upon this, this prophet Jonah, this human being, this very human prophet. It's focused upon him. And from beginning to end, the searchlight never leaves Jonah. Oh, within the, the sort of arc of light, you see things about the sailors and the storm and the fish that was prepared and the prayer of Jonah and his deliverance and then his going to Nineveh and the repentance of Nineveh and so on. But in actual fact, from beginning, from the, the first few words of the story right through to the end, the, the searchlight of God never leaves the relationship between Jonah and the Lord and the Lord and Jonah. Because you see, Jonah is being used as a kind of illustration of something far more general, far bigger than the man himself. His experience, as recorded here, and this is the interesting point because there's a lot else evidently about the prophet Jonah's life that is unrecorded. We have, as we said last week, we had but a little glimpse in the second book of Kings into what evidently amounted to quite a big ministry. But you see, what is recorded here, the experience, his experience as recorded in the book of Jonah, and included amongst the prophets, that's the interesting factor, because in fact it isn't prophetic discourse, but history, is given as a portrayal of a breakdown in the vocation of God's people. Now that's the point. It is a portrayal of a breakdown, a collapse in the vocation or calling of God's people. Although the book seems wholly directed to the Gentile uh, with a message of hope and deliverance and salvation upon repentance, based upon repent their repentance, 
uh, although the whole atmosphere of the book seems directed toward the Gentile, in fact, it becomes increasingly clear that as you study the little book, the underlying message and reason for its being recorded is um, a message to God's people. <laughs> um, it's all to do with the relationship of God's people to the unsaved. The relationship in the Old Covenant of the Jew, the Israelite, to the Gentile, to the nations, as they were called. You know, in Hebrew, the word heathen and nations were synonymous. Um, you see, it was the rela this relationship between God's nation and the other nations, God's people and the unsaved Gentiles. This is the the underlying message of the book. It is in fact, strangely enough, though all to do with the Gentiles, it is a message for us, uh, we who are God's own. The very way the book slowly builds up, and it's a literary gem in this way for dramatic effect. Some people have called it one of the most dramatic little books ever written because it encompasses an amazingly dramatic story told in the most effective uh, way within the compass of 48 verses. And when you've read it, it's in your mind, the bare facts of the story are in your mind. You may not know what it's teaching, but the bare facts are in your mind. The very way that it slowly builds up, beginning uh, with just the prophet being called, and then he goes his disobedience, he goes down, pays his fare, gets on board a ship, and uh, you see him sailing away, and then the Lord intervening, and then you see the great tussle over his natural preservation, whether men can save him, and so on, that they can't, he's thrown overboard, and it's up to God to save him, and God does save him. And then you get that amazing prayer of deliverance, twofold, uh, Two stages in God's deliverance. Very, very interesting. We shall look at that, I trust, a little later. But two stages in God's deliverance of Jonah. The Lord was going to be very careful with this man before he uh, recalled him to his ministry and to his function again. And then you go on to the second call after he's been delivered. And he goes back to Nineveh. And uh, gradually the story begins to build up his message. Forty days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And the whole city comes down on its knees. Repentance, true, genuine repentance, such as I think the prophet Joan never saw uh, amongst God's people. Uh, the kind of uh, repentance that no doubt took his breath away. Something that every prophet looks for in his ministry, uh, if he's called of God. Which had never happened amongst his... Uh, God's people, but had now happened within a moment. Evidently he didn't say much, but it happened. And God forgave, God pardoned, and God deferred judgment. And then, then, and only then, does the story begin to come out into the open. Then, for the first time, you begin to get under the surface, and you begin to find that it's not just a story, it's not just a miracle, it's not just a, a rather wonderful Old Testament um, story, a uh, bit of history, uh, you begin to see Jonah's real uh, mentality coming out into the open. His real attitude and approach comes now right out into the open. Why he fled in the beginning, we always wonder why did he, why was he disobedient? 
Was it just capricious? Was it just that he didn't want to go? What was it? Was it impulsive? See, now it comes out the motive for it. He tells the Lord, I knew. And I, that's why I went right away at the beginning. And then you go on stage by stage till you come to that rather amazing story of the good, which seems to be an anticlimax for a moment, until suddenly the whole thing builds right up. And the last uh, point is the message of the book. The last two verses of Jonah are in fact the message and the lesson of the book. Should not I have pity? If you had pity for this plant, should not I have pity for this great city? And not only that, but the 120,000 who can't discern between left and right and the, the cattle that are there. The way the whole story builds up, you see, reveals that it is the relationship between the Lord and Jonah which is the heart of the matter. And that although this has a message for the Gentiles, supremely it is a message for God's people concerning the Gentile, if you get what I mean. An indirect message for the Gentile uh, is the way way it has now been recorded. uh, For God's people, And it is also very interesting, if you want a little further evidence for that, if you look in that last chapter 4 of Jonah, you will will note the thou and I. This seems to sum up the relationship, you see. Um, The Lord says in verse 4, Do you, or doest thou, well to be angry? And then in verse 9 again, Doest thou well to be angry for the part? Doest thou well? And then again here in verse 11, Should not I have pity? You see here, there's a, finally, the whole thing's brought out into the open, and it, and it says it were condensed in a few words. Thou and I, doest thou well in this attitude of yours? Should not I have this attitude? And between those two, you have the secret uh, of the book of Jonah. It is within the relationship uh, of the Lord and Jonah, and Jonah uh, and the Lord. So you see, we can say that Jonah teaches us a very simple lesson, but it's a very profound lesson, one that few really learn in a right way, in a balanced way. And that is that having been saved ourselves, we have a tremendous responsibility in our salvation to discharge toward the unsaved. One of the most um, solemn things in, in coming to God is that God, by so doing, uh, the grace of God being expressed to us, there is inherent within our salvation, a solemn responsibility. You see, God is no no um, respecter of persons. So often you get this rather warped idea that the Lord rather liked us, and so he chose us, and he didn't like some of the others, so he didn't uh, take them, and so we don't have to bother about them, because it's just too bad. The Lord just doesn't bother about them. He wasn't interested in them. The whole thing is this, that if you and I have been saved, we have a tremendous responsibility toward those who are not his. A very solemn uh, thought, but it's inherent within our salvation. So it focuses attention, this book, upon the whole conception of the Lord in choosing Israel.
Why did God choose Israel above all the other nations um, of the world? That he might, by, the, by them, that they, if I may put it this way, that, that they might be the means of bringing the nations to God and of bringing God to the nations. God's whole conception in Israel was that she might, as it were, be the centre um, in which God could reach out to the Gentiles, to the far ends of the earth, and, and bring the Gentile in darkness into the light of God in his own people, shared amongst his own people. It was to be a two-way thing, see. God reaching out to the Gentile, and the Gentile reaching out to God. And where would God, and how would God reach out to the Gentile? Through Israel. And how would the Gentile reach out to God? Through Israel. Israel was to be, as it were, the, um, the medium uh, by which God reached the world. And by which the world reached God. Now, if you begin to get hold of this, you're getting to the heart of this book, and you'll begin to understand what our relationship should be to the outsider, to the unsaved. You see... God's conception was simply this. Israel was to be his representative in the earth. His corporate representative, if you like. What does that mean? More than just a representative, can I use this word? It may get nearer to the truth. Israel were to be the representation of the Lord in the earth. That is, God's character was to be embodied in a nation. Now that means that God's character was to come out through flesh and blood. That God's ways were to be embodied in a nation. That God's purpose was to be deposited in a nation. Now do you understand what it means? You see, it simply means that if the world wanted to see God, they would see him in Israel. If they wanted to find God, they would find him in Israel. If they wanted to understand God, they would understand him through Israel, in and through Israel. If they wanted to be saved of God, it would be in and through Israel. This is what the Lord meant when he said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my firstborn go. Israel was God's firstborn. Now, if you have a firstborn, the thought is that there are others to follow. Do you understand? And God's whole conception at the very beginning of the nation, that's when it began then with Moses, as it were, the nation itself, when it came out, was that it should be a kind of firstborn amongst the nations. That this, this nation should be the very personification of God. That's the highest line watermark in Isaiah's ministry. That's where all this controversy that rages over whether the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is a corporate person or whether it's the Lord Jesus personally. Well, of course, firstly, when Isaiah spoke, he saw it as the, as the nation. He saw through the nation to the Messiah, in whom in the end the whole thing would be uh, summed up and fulfilled.
Well, I don't know whether I've made myself clear in this, but you see, when you've said that and you transfer it to the church, you and I come up against one of the most serious and the most um, shaking uh, challenges in the Bible. You see, you've got to the heart of it now. Israel were to be, now I'm going to use this word, and I don't want it to be misunderstood, a corporate missionary of God. It was to be the missionary of God. If you like, it was to be the sent one of God, the apostle of God, in the, uh, the corporate servant of the Lord amongst the nations. You see, when we talk about a servant, we talk of a personality. We don't talk of a machine. We don't talk of an automaton. We talk of a personality who acts in service, whose function is service. But the, it's a personality. And God's whole thought, you see, was that as a personality expresses a character, so this servant of the Lord Israel, this firstborn of God, should express a character. It shouldn't be like the character of the other nations. It should be the very character of God himself, not perverted, not distorted, not unbalanced, not held in part. But through this nation, the character of God expressed, so that the nation might know God, might understand God. In coming into touch with these Israelites, they would say, you're different. You've got something that is just not earthly. It's not of this world. Now, again, this is the very message of some of the prophets. You see, some of them said that there would come a day when the peoples of the world would catch the garments of those going up to Jerusalem and would say, let us come find your God. Well, what is that? Do you think that the world wanted to catch hold of a lot of pious old maidish cranks that were going up to some kind of conference? No, believe me, the world is much more wise than we understand in this way. <laughs> they know only too well that such have no message for them and no, nothing to offer them. They leave that to the realm of religion. But you see, what does this little reference uh, of the prophet to people catching hold of them and seizing them and saying, you mustn't go, we're going to come with you. Unless you let us come, we won't let you go. You see, these people, these Gentiles, had seen something in the people of God and now they couldn't let go of them. They had to, they had to cling to them. Their attitude was, we won't let you go unless you take us. If you take us, we'll let you go. And this was again uh, one of the um, points that the prophets made. When the Lord would restore the fortunes of his people, then the nations of the earth would come up, you see. In fact, it never happened. It happened uh, just a little. There have been wonderful little phases of glory in the history of God's people under the Old Covenant in Solomon's day, and later on in Hezekiah's day, and in others day, other, some of the others their day, when people did come up. But you see, it was only when the Lord Jesus died, when those Greeks came up to the Lord Jesus and they said, we would see Jesus. Jesus wouldn't see them. He gave them but a little word. It seemed rather severe, rather an austere kind of attitude to them. But he said, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bring forth much fruit. You see what the Lord was getting at? His attitude was after the cross. 
then, then all this promise, all this promise, all this conception of God in his people would come into its own. It would be realized. And then for the first time would the Gentiles start to catch hold of the skirts of God's people and ask to come in. Of course it happened at the day of Pentecost and later on when dear Peter was preaching one day the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles much to his consternation uh, uh, as well as it had fallen upon the Jews. That's how it happened you see. And from then on first Samaria then the Gentiles and then you get the great apostle of the Gentiles and so slowly but surely the fulfillment of all this conception of God took place. Now you see the whole point was that was God's conception in the nation but instead instead of that being fulfilled and realized again and again and again Israel either compromised with the nations and became identified with them so that instead of having another kind of character she took on the character of her neighbors lost her identity and therefore lost her testimony that's what's hap what happened again and again. So she lost her function. There was no function. Or the other thing happened. And uh, just as terrible. Israel refused to have anything to do with her neighbors. She became exclusive. She became particular. There were phases in God, the history of God's people under the old covenant when this happened. And then she turned in on herself. And just as truly, though not so obviously, she lost her testimony. Just as truly, she lost her testimony. In the New Testament, you have no greater, more sound body, more evangelistic body, if you like, than the Pharisaic party. Of all the groups in the, in the New Testament, the Pharisees were the embodiment of this separation from the world. This exclusive particularism, you see. Yet they were sound. Many of them were godly. They were very careful about the law of God. They were fundamentalists uh, to the last dot and the last T. But you see, they had lost the testimony. They didn't know it. But the testimony of God was not there. It had gone long before. They've got the soundness. They've got the separation. If you like, they've got the sanctification outwardly. But they've lost the testimony. And you see, if this was true of God's own under the old covenant, how much more true is it of God's own under the new covenant? We who are, in fact, Gentiles by birth, who have been brought into the family of God and now are one with these other brothers and sisters who lived under the old covenant. How much more true is it of us uh, that, we, that we should have a right attitude uh, to those who are without the covenant, outside of the family of God? For you see, for whatever way you look at this book, whether you look at it <clears throat> as having a message for the saints under the old covenant, or whether you look at it as having a message for the saints under the new covenant, whether you look at it on the corporate level, 
or whether you look at it on the individual personal level, it has the same basic message. To the saints under the old, to the saints under the new, to the church of God, or to the churches of God, or to you as an individual and particular Christian, the basic message of Jonah is exactly the same. Just as God took Jonah as a man, because he characterized the whole of this attitude and mentality in himself, so you can narrow it down to each one of us. And we can unwittingly be the very portrayal and illustration of this same mentality and attitude. And I must say, in all fairness, that it's very, very common amongst so many of God's people. And I might say one other thing. It is more common amongst those who go on with the Lord, strangely enough, than those who remain in the shadows. It's a strange thing. But it is those who go on to understand the nature of their calling and the, and the house of God and what the Lord really means, what his purpose really is, that the whole danger of exclusivism and particularism and, 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 and a cold aloofness to reaching the world comes in. Well, I hope I've made this clear. You see, indifference or lethargy or that hide-bound, unbalanced theological conceptions which stop us or hinder us from discharging this responsibility to the unsaved, will always involve us in the same contention that God had with Jonah. We may not feel it as yet. But, believe you, me, if there's any indifference, or if there is any lethargy in our hearts, or any aloofness in our hearts, or if we have a mentality which we are unconscious of, but which has grown out of uh, these theological conceptions that, that are held only uh, in part and not in their full perspective, then, you see, we, get, we, will, get it, we will become involved in this same contention. We shall find the Lord lovingly, firmly, and in some cases sternly in grace having this whole thing out with us in the finish. And I might say that if he doesn't have it out with us down here, he'll certainly have it out with us up there. You can rest assured of that. You might as well pray that he has it out with you down here. <coughs> you see, it's a solemn fact that if we are indifferent, or if we are exclusively aloof, Sooner or later, we shall walk the path of disobedience. Now think about that. You see, you can't obey God and not have the same attitude as God. And many of us think we can. Sooner or later, we shall be forced into disobedience. You see, this whole thing began when Jonah was serving the Lord. Well, he was quite happy to serve. Oh, Jonah, Jonah, I want you to say to my people this and this and this. Oh, yes, Lord, certainly. 
eh? went and then they all just listened God's people I suppose some of them might have even sort of said what a silly man he is but Jonah didn't seem to mind that you see the fact that no one repented that no one seemed to take much notice really as far as we can make out uh, of his ministry because the reign of Jeroboam was terrible it was oh, the beginning of the terrible slide to the end of Israel didn't seem to worry Jonah perfectly prepared to go on in that atmosphere of gainsaying and contradiction and antagonism and opposition. But you see, he didn't know it, but there was something in his heart that was going to make him walk the path of disobedience. He, did, he wasn't conscious of it. He thought, disobedience, me? Why, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I'm dependent upon the Lord. I haven't got a wage, I haven't got a salary, I haven't got anything. I'm dependent upon the Lord utterly for everything. I wouldn't be disobedient. But, you see, he didn't know himself. There was going to come a day when the Lord said, uh, Jonah. I think he'd never said to the Lord, uh, to, the, to, to Jonah before. Uh, the Lord said to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And immediately, the curtain fell on Jonah's service. It was the finish of his service. Oh, no. No, 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 Lord. No, he evidently thought about it. It wasn't just, just and completely impulsive. He thought about it. He thought, I know just, just what's going to happen. I, if he talked like us, he would have said, I know what the Lord's going to do. I know what the Lord's going to do. He's going to get me there. And then when I'd said it all, and it would make me look a fool, the whole crowd will repent and knowing the Lord, what he is, he'll say to them, I'll forgive you. And then I shall be left with a wrecked reputation. So Jonah fled. Because there were other things much deeper than just that, you see. Jonah had imbibed a theological uh, set of doctrines, if you like, about uh, the heathen. Because later on, unfortunately, that terrible term grew up amongst the Jews, the dogs. Term of despising. And somehow or other, he had, uh, he had imbibed it without knowing it. He'd got this sort of thing. Well, they are the uh, unelect of God. They are uh, those that have not been, in the, 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 not been elected of God. We are the people of God. We are the people of God. Well, there we are. It's... Um, a terrible thing to recognize, but it is, it is true. And so, when we come to this book, we see that Jonah is supremely the book of evangelism in the Old Testament. Whilst the Old Testament, in other parts, speaks about evangelism amongst the unsaved, there is no book that is given to it exclusively. This little book in the Old Testament is the sole representative of um, uh, this teaching about evangelism, about the unsaved, about reaching the unsaved. And I think that's a point that we have to underline. You see, it is a great correction to that hard and indifferent spirit, which though itself saved, and privileged and blessed of God has no real concern whatsoever for the unsaved. It's the correction of the idea 
that light and understanding and life and fellowship are for us exclusively to enjoy without any sense that we've got to share it with the world. Oh, no. Certainly not. We are the children of God. So we must get on enjoying the Lord and enjoying the light that God is giving to us. Enjoying the revelation that's coming to us as we read his word and as we gather together um, for study of his word. Enjoy fellowship one with another and so on. Don't you think sometimes that's why the Lord gives us so many bad times? Both in the study of the word personally and corporately and also in our fellowship because he said this is something that's getting in time this is something that's just for itself I don't want this this is not something I like these people have exchanged one selfish principle in the world for another selfish principle in Christ the thing has become what I want am I going to get anything out of it I didn't get anything out of that meeting I don't seem to get anything out of fellowship no one speaks to me no one bothers about me no one takes any notice of me I never drawn in on anything and all the rest of it you see that mentality that attitude that soul destroying self principle which is so so amazingly active and assertive amongst God's people you see this little book is the great corrective. It's the, if you want, it's the great, the great pouring out of God for those who are without. The sacrificial service uh, to, to, to those who are without the covenant. Saved is an old phrase bandied about a lot. Oh, we've tended to forget it because it has sometimes rather unfortunate associations. But you know, that word is true. We are saved to serve. Some people may put a slightly wrong thing and may make it all activity without uh, understanding that there's got to be inward character and experience, but nevertheless it's true. This little book you could write as its motto is that we're saved to serve. We are God's body by which his character should be expressed, through which his ways should be known, in which his purpose should be understood. We are the body of God. We are the body of the Lord Jesus. Do you understand? And in that way, you see, we are the representation of God in the earth. Ours is the solemn responsibility to carry God carry Christ to the people. They are supposed to understand God in us. They are supposed to see God in us. They are supposed to find God in us. <clears throat> they are supposed to come to God's salvation through us. This is the teaching of the book of Jonah. Uh, it is rather um, solemnizing. It's challenging. You see, <clears throat> this book is a corrective, a great corrective, for many wrong uh, ideas held amongst those of us who are God, uh, the children of God. That spirit that neither wants to be put out 
for the unsaved. Neither wants to go out to them. That was Jonah. Oh, my being put out for God's people, and I don't want to be put out for the unsaved, and I don't want to have to go out to them. Of course, if they come to us, ah, that's good. That's good. If they come to us, just like the Old Testament proselytes were welcomed, that's a good thing. That's good. That shows the Lord's working when they come to us. We don't have to do anything about it. They just flow, flow in. See, this was, the, this was Jonah's idea. Oh, yes, he knew the word of God. He knew the law of God. That if people came into the land and um, uh, offered themselves uh, for proselyteship, or whatever you call it, um, they could be taken on so long as they were circumcised and long as they entered into the covenant that God made with Abraham and with Moses. They're so well and good. But that's an entirely different thing to going out to them. It's neither necessary for one thing, and on the other hand it's positively irksome, and it can be futile. So, so Jonah's attitude is one that is expressed quite fully amongst us. For in every heart there is something of this spirit, which rejoices in seeing people come to the Lord, so long as we, not have, we don't have to be put out for them, and as long as we don't have to go out to them. And I've even heard it said in some places by some people that when too much fuss is made over a young one in the Lord, it's a very bad thing indeed. You see, that's how far the spirit and the mentality goes. It's embodied in this little book of uh, Jonah. It's the spirit which revels in the company of pious saints but draws its skirts around it the moment it touches someone from the world. The kind of thing that runs a mile at the smell of tobacco smoke. You know what I mean? That's Jonah. Oh dear, no, 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 the world. What on earth would happen if there was a revival? I don't know to some of us. And we had roomfuls and parlefuls of people smoking cigars and pipes and cigarettes and all the rest of it. Some of them couldn't stand it a moment longer. They'd go around telling them all that it wasn't right. And they should give it all up. But he, that's not the point. The real point is they don't like their houses being ruined by tobacco smoke. And they don't like the pollution that gets into them. I'm using that as a, a rather silly illustration of something much bigger, you see. It is this spirit that loves gatherings of God's people, that loves the sort of holy atmosphere, clean, unpolluted atmosphere of God's people. But as soon as it touches the world, it, it withdraws. All the time it withdraws. It it involuntarily draws back when it touches the world. Anyone who lets a word out that he shouldn't let out. Anyone that smells a little bit of drink. Anyone that's got something about him that... Ooh. That's the spirit. That's the spirit that's in us all. Having gone on with the Lord, we, we, we somehow become detached from the world and well, somehow the world shocks us when we see it in the war. And we don't find it easy to go out. Oh, yes, if they're lovely, presentable, attractive people, we can go and wish, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if so-and-so came to the Lord? But, of course, if they're not quite so attractive and lovely, but wrecks and perverts and much else, well, then it's a big battle for us to get through uh, over the difficulties that are bound to... In, in, you see, the book, this book, 
is <clears throat> a corrective, again, to those doctrinal conceptions and patterns which admit of no truth outside of their scheme, and which so often drive an effective wedge between God's people and the world. Jonah's real trouble wasn't selfish. It was, of course, a theological conception that he had about God and his God's people. And he, he was, he, oh, it's all right, I don't mind Nineveh. The only thing he felt about Nineveh was, if we're going to go at all, let's denounce them, Lord. And I don't really want to go. But if I'm going to go at all, let's go and give them a good message of judgment, Lord. And I'll be there to sit outside and watch it all fall on them. You see? And that's exactly what he did. Even when the Lord changed his mind, he went out and built a little booth and was going to sit it out 40 days to see whether the Lord would change his mind again and destroy them. Now, you see, you say, but that's a terrible thing. None of us would be guilty of that. No, but you see, this is the kind of thing that a, theolo a wrongly held theological conception can drive us to. It can bring us to this. You see, in fact, dear Jonah thought the Lord was going to come outside and enjoy the spectacle too. He thought there was nothing more the Lord would love than to see Nineveh go up in smoke and flame and the whole thousands of the population die, including all the cattle and everything else. He thought, then would the Lord love this? And when the Lord didn't, he had a sneaking suspicion at the very beginning that the Lord might not. And when he found the Lord didn't, it was the rudest awakening and shock that poor Jonah ever had. As you know, Christ then, he says, I want to die. It went so deep, he was so deeply depressed by the whole shattering of his conceptions that he just wanted to finish it all there and then. He just didn't want to live anymore. His whole spiritual, theological world had gone up with an atom bomb. And he was left with nothing. Poor Jonah. Still he came out with very much more than he ever had before he went into it. You see... It's one of the abiding lessons of this book that the Lord's attitude to the unsaved is often very, very different to the attitude of those who are meant to represent the Lord. Isn't this a terrible thing? That we might have one attitude to Richmond and God might have a totally different one. That we might have one attitude who are meant to represent him, to express his character. One approach and mentality altogether and God has an entirely different one and he's having a contention with us about the whole thing. You just are not identified with me in my, my feelings. You see, God is revealed in this little book of, of Jonah as so gracious, so compassionate, so pitiful, so merciful. He forgives the sailors and saves them. He saves a contrite Jonah. He saves a repentant Nineveh. It doesn't matter who it is, so long as they repent, so long as they turn to him, he saves them all. That's the kind of God that we, sit, we find revealed here. A God who loathes judgment, who doesn't desire judgment, who would avert or defer judgment if it is at all and righteously possible. This is the kind of God that is revealed in the book of Jonah. He delights and Rejoices in repentance and pardon. That's the thing he delights in. That's why, of course, his contention with Jonah. Jonah was lying there out there in deep salt, a huge bad time lying there just above his head, as it were, um, for a day or two. Whereas the Lord was in himself rejoicing. 
he'd been able to forgive Nineveh and defer the judgment. And so the Lord prepared the little gourd. And that wonderful little story about the gourd and then the worm and then the sultry east wind, all prepared by God to teach Jonah something and to bring him finally and last to the right point, to the right place with the Lord. So, <clears throat> you see, if Jonah was a stranger to Nineveh, the Lord wasn't. And you go away and think about that. You might be a stranger to the streets of Richmond, but the Lord isn't. You might be a stranger to the places where people are being wrecked and everything else, but the Lord isn't. You must remember that where you often don't go, the Lord is found. But rarely does the Lord move without his body. He needs the flesh and blood of his body to reach the men and women whom he sees. He had to take a Jonah into the city before Nineveh got on its knees. When he got the flesh and blood, represented him, albeit rebelliously and poorly, into the city, Nineveh came down to its knees before God and God forgave it. So here is the most solemn and most terrible part of all of the book of Jonah that God in fact needs us and wants us and desires us. He will sometimes do things sovereignly apart from his own but that's not his plan, especially when it's the house of God. His whole point is his body is himself incarnate. Something by which he can reach out. Flesh and blood through which he can touch and say, Oh, I hope you've got hold of that. You see, Jonah teaches us the way God would bring his own into an absolute identity with himself. An identity with his own character and attitude. If God is full of pity, he wants us to be. If God is full of compassion, he wants us to be. If God speaks in judgment only to bring people to their knees, to warn them. He wants us to hold the same approach, to have the same approach to the question of judgment. Some people I cannot help feel love judgment. And I love talking about it. Oh, how much we need to see these things. And the Lord indeed would teach us through this book how he would express himself, his compassion and grace and sympathy and love through us all the time. With Jonah, it was a long battle. But the wonderful thing about the book of Jonah is, as far as we can tell from the way it's left, at least we trust it, so Jonah got there. The Lord won the battle with Jonah. And uh, if there's anything to go by, the way that the account's been written, and the lot that only Jonah could have told, infers and implies that, in fact, Jonah got through and came to a new place so that the story could be given for all time as a memorial to this uh, thing that we're talking about, this matter that we're talking about. Jonah was assigned in every way to Nineveh, uh, where he was called, the Lord said he was assigned to the Ninevites in Luke 11, 30. What was he assigned? The wages of sin is death, but that where there is repentance and faith, God freely gifts eternal life. That was what he was, uh, he was assigned to the Ninevites. He himself had reaped the wages of sin, disobedience, when in the fish's belly he got on his knees and in repentance and faith had turned to the Lord, 
the Lord restored him. So he gave him back his life. He was a sign. He was a sign of the Lord Jesus in his death for the disobedience of others. Jonah went into the fish for his own disobedience, but the Lord for the disobedience of others. And he was raised that, that others, through faith in him, might receive eternal life. He is also a sign to God's people uh, of, of their vocation concerning the unsaved. So, there we are. One other thing just to note, and that is the amazing candor and uh, intimate relationship between Jonah and the Lord. An amazing relationship. Now, very simply, here's the outline of Jonah. I, tonight, because I had a little more space on the board, I've been able to put the subheadings as well so that you can look through. It's, the book of Jonah is divided into two, the first two chapters and the last two chapters. The first two chapters, Jonah's call, his disobedience and the results. And the last two chapters, Jonah's second call, his obedience, and the lesson. Now, very swiftly, let's just take these um, chap chapters, go through them. And then you see in the first two verses, you have Jonah's call. That's quite self-explanatory. In verse 3 of chapter 1, you have Jonah's disobedience, when he runs away from the Lord. Then from verse 4 to 14, you have the resulting storm. Now notice one or two things about this resulting storm. Look at the word that is used here in verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind. That's what happens when we, when we get out of the way of the Lord. He hurls a great wind. When Moffat turns it, he flung a furious wind uh, upon, the, upon the sea. Look at Jonah's reply, verse 9 and 10. Simple but honest. When he says, I am a Hebrew, a servant of the Lord, a God who made heaven and the earth. A very simple declaration, but it was a faithful one. A faithful one for a man who was running away from the Lord. Then in verse 12, you get the magnanimity of, of Jonah. The way that when they tell him, they say, what shall we do? Whatever have you done? They evidently thought he'd murdered somebody, by the way. You, if you look in their questions, they say, on whose account is all this? They thought he'd done wrong to someone, and the Lord was after him for it. And later, when they say, what shall we do? He says, the only thing you can do is throw me into the sea. We'll stop it. I'm the cause of it. They try to... The nobility of the sailors has seen the way that they furiously work to avert that possibility, but it's no good. The Lord's too much for them. He means Jonah to be done. The old Jonah wasn't going to confess, you know. The captain came to him and said, Pray! <coughs> Jonah doesn't pray. Jonah's on a sit-down strike. Oh, he's not going to pray even with a storm going right over the ship. That's the kind of thing that happens when a man knows the Lord and knows what it, what it means. He's running away from the Lord. He knows the Lord. He's not, not one of these little timid youngsters in the family. He's someone who knows the Lord. And he's, Lord, I, I don't mind. And I'm quite sure that when they flung him over, he thought, I want it. You see, the point was, Jonah's life had no meaning without the Lord. I understand a little of that, don't you? It had no meaning without the Lord. The Lord was the meaning of his life. He was now running away from the Lord. <coughs> had no more meaning. As far as he was concerned, 
He couldn't commit suicide, knew that was wrong. If someone else threw him in, that was all right. <coughs> <laughs> so, you see, the whole point of Jonah was, all right, you throw me in. I'm the cause of this, throw me in. It'll stop immediately. And he never prayed, he never pleaded with the Lord, he never did anything. In the end, it got worse and worse. The Lord was after him and he knew it. And I believe that Jonah knew that he was going to die. He was going to die by drowning. And he was flung in. So, you see, you get something here. You get the goodness of the sailors, those dear men. They got on their knees before they threw Jonah in. It's almost amusing. And said to the Lord, Lord, forgive us for this murder. We don't want to do it. <coughs> we understand that it's innocent blood. We shouldn't be doing it. But Lord... You are behind this. So even the sailors saw that the Lord was behind it. And they told the Lord, you are behind this. So they said, we're throwing him in. Because when they threw him in, they were all converted. The sea immediately stopped, and it said they all made vows to the Lord and offered sacrifices. So it was quite obvious they all came to the Lord. <coughs> then, it's amazing how Jonah was used, wasn't it, to save Gentiles all the way through, even though he didn't want to be. It's a little interesting sideline on a person's function and ministry. They can't help it. <laughs> then you see, you get, I call it Jonah overboard. Uh, verse 15, 16, and 17. I, I call it that because I think it includes more than just Jonah in the fish. Um, you have the conversion of the sailors in verse 16. And then you've got the Lord's appointment. Isn't this interesting? Two great things. A great wind which started it all and a great fish. And it's very interesting that in the Hebrew the, the two things are linked. A great wind that the Lord hurled upon the sea and now a great fish appointed of God. God had an appointment for his prophet. He thought he was going to die by drowning but the Lord in fact had got an appointed fish for him that was going to save him. Then you've got Jonah's cry of faith, chapter 2, 1 to 9, there's nine verses. It's an amazing thing, this. Now, truly, this is an amazing thing. You see, first of all, he's not thanking God for being saved from the fish, first of all. He's thanking God for being saved from drowning. And when you see this, it's rather amusing, but very human. You see, Jonah obviously thought when he went over into the water, if you look at uh, verse 3, he realized that he was going right down. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me, weeds were wrapped around him. He evidently sank. Now, most of you have seen pictures with the men throwing Jonah over on a huge fish with his mouth wide open into which he just fell, all of which I think is wrong. It's quite possible, I think, that Jonah went down three times. The third time on the way down, the, the fish swallowed. You see, he knew he was drowning. And in the remarkable way, which only those of you who have ever been near to drowning, my sister has, I know this, uh, from her first hand, the whole of your life leaps before you as if in an hour or two. In fact, it happens in a brief second. And Jonah undoubtedly saw the whole thing, and then he woke up. And he says in this psalm that he cried to the Lord. Now that's the point, you see. That was when he cried, when he was going down before the fish swallowed him. He cried to the Lord. And the Lord swallowed him up in the fish. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? You see, evidently the fish was somewhere, either down underneath. It's not necessarily a whale at all. And suddenly, it just saw this bait coming down and <laughs> swallowed him. But I always find it slightly amusing to realize that Jonah's inside a fish thanking the Lord. 
That, to me, is the most remarkable thing. I'm sure that if I'd been swallowed by a fish, I would have thought, well, this is terrible. Absolutely terrible. I'd be saved from drowning, but surely this is a worse fate. But it seems to me that Jonah knew the Lord, and to Jonah the fish was a sign. I'm sure of that. And he must have had a strange intuitive sense within that this was not the end. Now, believe me, to be in the, on the inside of a fish must be, for most of us, surely the end. I can't think of anywhere else on earth where we're less likely to hold a, a, a little service of thanksgiving or praise than in the inside of a fish. But it was here that, that Jonah thanked the Lord, a most remarkable place for praising the Lord. He thanked him for saving him, for drowning, and then, if you go on, it's obvious that at the point of death, he sought the Lord. He says, when my soul fainted, the actual word is when my soul was departing from me, going from me, I sought the Lord. See? So evidently, just that point, and then the fish, appointed of God. And so you get this wonderful thanksgiving inside the fish, and then you go on to this, the amazing faith of Jonah. You see, Jonah starts talking about the Lord's temple. Starts talking about his prayer coming in the temple. Now, now don't laugh about this, but do you know what Jonah was, was, um, was, was referring to? He was referring to Solomon's prayer of dedication. And Solomon, in all his glory and wisdom, I'm sure never thought that any child of God would remember it inside a fish somewhere under the sea. But he had said, wheresoever they be, if they turn towards the house, lift up their hands, repent of their sin, and call upon thee, Lord, out of thy dwelling place, save. That's exactly what Jonah remembered. And so, I don't suppose he knew quite how to turn, but inwardly he turned to where, toward the temple and appealed to the Lord on the basis of Solomon's great prayer of dedication. And he says his prayer came into the temple. He knew it by faith. He knew it. Now, I think that's the most remarkable thing. Another remarkable thing is Jonah's knowledge of the Psalms. Do you know how many Psalms he quotes in this little Psalm? Forty. And he quotes some of them two or three times. Fourteen psalms. Now, he didn't have the Bible, you know. He didn't have the book of psalms with him. Out of his memory, he quoted the psalms. They were in him. Now, this has been so that many people say that this whole thing is prefabrication. It's not even truth, this book. Because of this psalm. It's a composite or what we call a mosaic psalm. Not of Moses, but... All little pieces of psalms fitted together into the most wonderful harmony. You see, it's exactly what a man would do when, he, from his memory, he began to remember all those psalms and hymns that he often sang. And he uses the phrases of them from his heart to express his meaning to the Lord. I think that is the most remarkable thing. And then he promises to keep um, a vow which he, which he says he's made. I wonder what that vow was. I think it was the thing the Lord was waiting for. I have a strong suspicion that Jonah said, Lord, if you get me out of this fish, I'll go to Nineveh. He said, I will pay the vow which I have made. I think that's what it was. And so the Lord has won the first stage of the battle. First, Jonah nearly drowning. 
secondly, he's being swallowed by a fish, has brought finally, dear Jonah, to the contrite place where he says, Lord, I'll do what you said if you only get me out of this. He believes the Lord will, and the answer is, as you see here, Jonah's, sex, uh, Jonah's deliverance, he vomited out on dry land. Well, it may all be a miracle, but it's um, a, very a very possible miracle, apart from anything else, just because it's God's word. And so, in many ways, that we find the Lord wins the battle. Do mark the word temple used twice in that, for those of you who are interested in right ground and wrong ground. Isn't it interesting? He speaks of the temple at Jerusalem, although he was a prophet of Israel. So again, you've got a little insight into this man. Though his mentality is wrong, he's on the right basis. It's the house of God, not a Bethel. It's the house of God at Jerusalem that he's talking about. Now, lastly, the last part is the last two chapters. In uh, chapter 3, the first two verses, you get his second call. The Lord again calls Jonah. In verse 3 and verse 4, you get Jonah's obedience there. Very interesting point is that when the Lord speaks of Nineveh being a great city, it's literally in Hebrew, if you look in your um, margins, you'll find that it means a city great unto God. And there's a touch of irony there, actually, because it wasn't great unto God in, in, in Nineveh, in um, Jonah's eyes. So he goes. He preaches. All we have as a sample of Jonah's ministry is that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. But that message brings the whole of Nineveh to its knees in repentance. From verse 5 to verse 9, you've got the description, self-explanatory, of, of the repentance of Nineveh. Then, from, in chapter 4, from, I'm sorry, in verse 10 of chapter 3, you have the Lord's forgiveness. When Nineveh repents, you have the Lord's forgiveness. He defers judgment. In fact, he deferred it, I think, for something like 160 years in all. Then you get Jonah's anger, chapter 4, from 1 to 4. Now the real message begins to come out into the open. What is the root of, of the conflict? It is this. Should the Lord save Nineveh or not? Jonah says he shouldn't. The Lord says he should. That's the conflict. And Jonah says to him, look, I knew this would happen. I knew it. When, I, when you first called me, that's why I ran away. Because I knew that when you got me here and I'd said this to them and they all repented, you would forgive them because you're so slow to anger and so plenteous in grace and loving kindness and you relent of any evil that you would send upon people. That's how Moffat puts it. Um, he says, uh, because of that, I, I was frightened to come. Now you've done the very thing I was frightened. I, really, Jonah's virtually saying, I, I wish I'd never been swallowed by the fish exactly what I thought would happen has happened. That's why I ran away. It's a strange thing that often the deep down fears we have in our hearts are things that could happen. And it's a very good thing to get through on them before ever it happens. Uh, those little fears we have, the only way to get through on them is to get through on them on the base, on the most basic level. If you're frightened of one day dying of some dread disease, get through on it now. Get through right on it now. Say, well, Lord, if that's the way, I'm prepared for it. Something's going to be gained for the Lord. I must get through on it now. So something else, get through on it. Get through on it. Always get through on the deepest level. Poor old Jonah, when he's only come out of the fish, 
I said to the Lord, now Lord, I've got a strong suspicion that you're going to, you're going to relent on this matter, but I'm going to get through now. It remained a very different story. But he hadn't. He had a sneaking hope that perhaps something else might happen. Well, here's the point. And then you see, you've got here, though mercy is shown to him, he cannot accept mercy being shown to Nineveh. And three things uh, determine his attitude. One is he's a it's offended his conceptions of what God ought to do. Now, most of us, if we're admitted, have got this kind of idea. When God does something, it offends our conceptions of what he ought to do. We think he shouldn't do that. Okay? Some people I know don't feel the Lord should be with Billy Graham. Okay? All those quite queer people he has up on the platform. Very wrong. If I was the Lord, I wouldn't do it. No, like to say it like that, you see, but that's exactly what they mean. And they say about many other things, you see. They say, oh dear, you know. And the trouble is, the Lord does a lot of things that they wouldn't do. Um, and they, and they, their conceptions are offended because they feel the Lord ought not to do that kind of thing, you see. He should spank them and put them away or cut them off or forsake them or something. Make it things very much more simple, wouldn't it? Uh, these dear Christians think. If, uh, if the Lord only sort of cut off everyone that did anything wrong, we would be right down to basic reality. But I don't think many of us would be left. That's the trouble. Uh, see, we all like it for others, but we don't like it for ourselves. That's why the Lord doesn't do it, you see. The wideness of God's mercy. <coughs> can't do what they do necessarily, but you can't, you mustn't be offended by what the Lord does. The Lord knows. He knows what he's doing. So, do remember that. Another thing that offended him was the fact that, he, that God was going to spare Israel's worst enemy. And, of course, the other thing was that it wrecked his reputation. Well, we must end. You know jo the story of Jonah's good. That's the next thing here. Jonah was so angry. Now the Lord starts to do something with Jonah. You know, he's gone out of the city. He's built a booth. He's sitting out the 40 days to see whether, in fact, the Lord will change his mind again. He's also human. You see, Jonah just feels somehow perhaps... The Lord's changed his mind once, perhaps he'll change it again. Go back to what I said anyway. So he makes a little booze and starts to... to he doesn't go back home to Israel. He's going to sit it out. See what the Lord changes his mind again. See what the Lord would do over Nineveh, the scripture says. And then the Lord has another appointment, just like the fish and the great wind. First, a lovely God. One of those things that comes up in the night. began to spread all over the booze. Great leaves came out, you see, and shaded Jonah from the sun. Jonah was so thankful for it. In his depression, little things, in depression, little things often do please us. And he was very comforted by this swift growing thing with its lovely green leaves. He watched it with joy, I suppose, and thought how lovely it was. And it, it afforded him a little respite from the heat. Because in his foolishness, of course, naturally, he'd stomped out away from where anyone else lived. I'm going to have anything to do with those Ninevites. Okay. And so he'd evidently gone to some de desert place uh, outside Nineveh. Then at dawn, and mark the times, set the night, but at dawn, just as the day began to break, a little worm got into the good. But it says that the Lord prepared the good, and it was the Lord who prepared the worm. That was the second stage. The Lord has now the second stage of his lesson. And of course, the gorgeous collapse. 
one of those things that just seemed deflated and went almost immediately. When sunrise, just a little later, about half an hour, an hour later, sun, sun came over the rim and began to beat down a sultry east wind, terrible wind, brings flies, dirt, and everything else. Um, it began to beat and beat upon Jonah. And, of course, Jonah, this was the end of Jonah. He lay down, he was so angry and annoyed about the plant and the wretched little world that had eaten the gourd given him such pleasure. This was the last straw, and you all know surely from experience. But if you really get into a deep depression, it generally it's only a very tiny thing, which is the last straw on the camel's back, isn't it? A very, very tiny thing indeed. This little worm was the last thing, but now the dreadful thing which surely Jonah had seen many a time, this terrible sultry wind, had sprung up, and for Jonah, it was the end of everything. Jonah wants to die. Twice he asked the Lord if he can die. For Jonah, there's no meaning outside of the Lord. He's got a contention with the Lord, and now he and the Lord are not one. There's no point in living. As far as Jonah's concerned, he might as well die. Everything's finished. The Lord blown sky high his conceptions, sky high his theological schemes. His mentality is completely wrecked. Now he just feels, what's the point anymore? Let's die. And then God's God says to the character of God's love and mercy, should not I spare And the most wonderful thing of all there is the way that the Lord righteously accounts for every single person. Ellison points out that the 120,000 who cannot discern between their left or their right hand are children under three years of age. That may well be true, because Nineveh, greater Nineveh consisted probably, from archaeological evidence, of four great cities. And uh, we know for a fact that they were heavily populated. So it may well be that this 120,000 were little children. And the Lord struck home this lesson only in the last verse of this book. Should not I spare that great city wherein are 120,000 little children? And much cattle, even the animals, are counted for by God. This was the character of God's grace and compassion and mercy. Not prepared that even uh, an animal should die. It reminds me of that little scripture the Lord gave us when he said that even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your father. The father knows. So you see, everything is taken into account. And the whole point is this. It is the longing of God, the longing of God, to act together with his own. He says to Jonah, do you well to be like this? Is it right for you to have this kind of... Is it best, the highest? Should not I? He wants Jonah to come into his, an identity, a fellowship with him in this outreach to the unsaved. You see, the lesson is that evangelism is inherent within our vocation. That's the lesson. Now, many of us, if we go home and ask the Lord about this, will come to one very simple little thing, and that is that, in fact, the mentality of Jonah is in us. We love the Lord, devoted to the Lord, but you know we've got such hard-set biases and prejudices that we're, in some cases, not even conscious of, 
that it's only when the law does something that that we we get all out put out of joint <coughs> and upset and annoyed. It's like so often when people say they don't feel so and so is the way, and then the Lord does a remarkable thing, saves someone to it, and then they're all on the spot, you see. <laughs> Rather than think, well, I'm wrong in this, I've got to learn again, they, they start to have a contention with the Lord. But it's never with the Lord, we don't like them. It's usually with his people we try to have it out. But in fact, we're having a contention with the Lord. And so the lesson, the message of this book, is that God, will bring us into his own compassion and concern for the unsaved. I wonder whether you and I can go home and really, before God, be satisfied with our approach and attitude to this world. Whether, in fact, we are not heading for a contention of the Lord, because somehow or other there's this thing, have this particularism, this aloofness, this indifference, or much else, that may be in us. Oh, may the Lord help us to see. But even in the Old Testament, there was a time when God sent one of his own just to teach the script lesson right out of the circumference of his people into the world <coughs> himself. To one of the worst uh, cities of the time, the seat of one of the greatest empires, to preach a message of deliverance and salvation Oh, I do trust this little book of Jonah will not stop here as something interesting, but you will really pray about it in these coming weeks and pray for an attitude like the Lord's toward those who are without, because it is inherent within our vocation, inherent within our calling. Oh, believe me, if, you, if, you, if we fail here, we involve ourselves in disobedience, and not only that, we fall out with the Lord. We can go on with everything else. We can have all our teaching and ministry and building up and all the rest, but we've fallen out with the Lord. And in a sense, here's Richmond, dying around us, and much else beyond it. And here's a little group just happy to just go on learning and uh, having fellowship and everything else. The Lord's outside of it. They're, they're not sharing compassion and concern of it. The Lord's in the streets of Lord's out to the unseen. Lord's long to move out. Oh, may the Lord help us not to run away, but to, to commit ourselves to him wholly. I say, may it be something, dear Lord, that we, we really all got to ask you, because one day, Lord, we're going to have to face this thing on the sea, face to face. Lord, make us, we pray, those who have no blood on our hands. Oh, those, Lord, who discharge their responsibility wholly, individually, and, Lord, at thy church here. Oh, help the loving Lord be Get us through and out of any mentality like Jonah, 
into something we bleed Jonah had at the end. An identity without compassion. An understanding by character. Make us in the fashion of Jesus. We ask you.